If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Friends, we are going to be joined today by Ilana Frank, the chief executive and founder of the Jewish Fertility Foundation. And we are going to be talking about authentic leadership. I think this is such an important topic for us to be talking about because being true to ourselves as leaders is essential to our ability to lead. Let's face it. We don't stop being who we are when we assume a leadership role. That means the good stuff. That also means the stuff that we trip over sometimes. All of that's still there inside of us. And how do we handle that when we become leaders? Because let's face it, people know when we aren't being genuine. People know, even if they have never met us before, they know when we're kind of putting on a face or an act and we're not being who we really are. And from our own perspective, it is even harder to sustain ourselves and not burn out when we're trying to be a leader who we aren't. And that's why I wanted to make sure we talked with Ilana Frank. So as I mentioned, she is the founder and chief executive of the Jewish Fertility Foundation. And let me share a little bit about her. So first of all, she brings more than 20 years of nonprofit experience in both the United States and Israel. But let me share this, because to me, this is the really critical part. She founded the nonprofit Jewish Fertility Foundation in 2016 as a result of her own life experiences. And in just about seven years, she has grown that organization to a staff of 12 serving six cities across the United States. And I also have to share with you, these are not the big-named cities that you would imagine. When you look at it, it's cities like Birmingham and Atlanta and Cincinnati. And let's face it, if you're going to be starting and growing a nonprofit in communities that typically have somewhat smaller Jewish communities compared to like L.A. and New York, you really have to be a leader and you have to be an authentic leader. And that is why I am so excited to welcome Ilana today. Hey, welcome to the podcast. 
Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I am so thrilled that you were here. And I thought I might start by by reading a quote of yours that I read, and then we'll just kind of jump the conversation from there. You had written, as a leader, I pride myself on having built a team of professionals, developing a fantastic culture, and providing professional development to my staff. The Jewish Fertility Foundation is a Jewish nonprofit where I actually want to work and grow. And what stood out for me there is you essentially said, you know, I'm leading an organization where I would want to work. It's true. I think that um, one of the things that I'm most proud of is our team. I could not be doing this alone. We've grown, like you said, so much over the past almost eight years. And it's literally because of the people that we hire, how we treat them and what we're offering them that we're successful today. And so help me understand how has Leading with Authenticity helped you grow JFF from really just an idea to a national organization with a dozen staff? So I think when I had this idea, it came because I myself struggle with infertility. I had a really hard time having babies. And I felt really passionate about something, but I also had the education and backing. It's not like I was one of those people who had a cause that was near and dear to my heart and just wanted to help people. I had been in the nonprofit sector fundraising and developing programs already by this time for over 10 years. So the fact that I was able to find a topic that resonated with me and I wanted to help people while professionally satisfying that itch that I had was like a win-win. And, um, through being persistent and kind of just strategizing and not giving up, I was able to develop the organization and kind of figure out where we are today. And in what ways would you say you built and led it that are authentic? I mean, I'm a woman, I'm a mom, and over the years, I learned a lot about my leadership style, probably because it wasn't always easy. And at times I was told, you know, you're a bulldog. Like people, people have a lot to say to the person in charge. And I learned over the years, it wasn't only because of my style. Like everybody comes to the table with their own stuff, right? Over the years, I have taken things really, really personally. And through a lot of coaching, have been able to understand that's just who I am. That is, I'm not trying to be a man who is leading in a certain style. Like I have to just continue being me and that is authentic. So sometimes I'm emotional, right? My topic is emotional. Sometimes it's hard for me when working with so many clients and I need to have therapy on my own. That's me. I mean, that is why I'm so passionate about the cause. Sometimes I'm persistent and sometimes a word for persistent is like a negative term. But you know what? That's why we got to where we are today. So those things I've had to, like, it hasn't been easy, but that has allowed me to lead the way that is authentic to who I am. And I feel like I would not be doing justice to this topic if I also did not just observe that if you're persistent, if you're a bulldog, and you're a man, the world views that differently than if you're a persistent and a bulldog and not a man. Yeah, it's it's true. I feel it. It's real. I think in the early part, uh, I mean, we're like seven plus years into this. In those beginning years, I don't know if it was a lack of confidence or 
perhaps we weren't talking about it openly as much, but it was really hard for me to swallow and to understand that. Today, I feel more confident, maybe because we are successful, maybe because I have raised almost $5 million for the cause. You know, I mean, I feel in a little bit in a different position um, and I own it. I own being a woman. I own being a mom, right? A working mom. And I think it's only helping me understand, you know, our employees better, relate to our employees, understand what they need and their needs are better. And to be that, the leader that I am, because I'm not going to change. I can't change who I am. I can continue to get professional development, but, and coaching and, you know, the therapy that I need to be successful, but it, it's who I am. And one of the things I think I've definitely heard you say is you did some professional and personal self-exploration and coaching and therapy. Would you be willing to share a little bit more about what that process was like, whether you want to yeah. talk about coaching or therapy and yeah. what it did for you? Sure. So, I mean, listen, any organization that is working around anything health-related or medical or client-based, I always ask and encourage, like not only me, but our staff and team, it's hard to, you know, our space is the infertility space and and loss and it's exhausting. It's hard. Also, as somebody who was going through infertility while I was helping clients, it sometimes became unbearable. And that's like the therapy side of it, making sure that your needs are met. And <laughs> that is really, really important or you can't help other people if you're not helping yourself. So that's like an obvious. What is not always obvious, I think, for my peers or for staff is a professional coach. These are people, they're not your therapist, right? They're not going to be talking about like marital problems with your husband or, you know, how to deal with your kids, but they are literally helping you see who you are as a professional. Like you're going to them, they're going to be honest with you and they're going to help you understand what tools you need to be the best leader that you can be. And I go to them and, you know, am I crazy about that? It's like a sounding board because if you're a CEO, I can't talk with my employees about issues that I'm having with, I don't know, board members or it's not professional. You cannot put that on them. I can't talk to my board about certain relationships. You have to have a third party. And my husband is sick of hearing from me. So who else do I go from? And it's it's a coach and it is the best money my organization has spent for, for me because I turn to them in times of stress, but also when there are moments and gaps of like, opportunity. How can I build myself up to get to the next level? And I'm telling you, without a coach, I would not be with who I am today. Wow. And th there's a few things you said that I want to reflect on, and maybe we can talk more about. The first is, when you were talking about kind of that loneliness of being the executive director, it's hard to talk to your board about some things, and you can't talk to staff about some things. Th there's a line that I recently read in a book called CEO Mindset. And a CEO described the loneliness of that position by saying, I'm the only person who sees what I see. The board doesn't see the world the way I do, and no one on staff does. And that makes it a much harder position. And, and I think those are the types of things, as you said, kind of that gut check. You can go to your coach and be like, am I seeing this incorrectly? Because I know I'm the only one with this perspective in this entire organization. I think it's really important, like coach, like finding the right coach is like dating, right? So not everybody is going to be a fit. I've been through several coaches who just, I need personally somebody who is direct. Like that's my style. That's who I am. And that's what I like. So they can call out my, you know, BS, right? So like if something is not feeling right, or if I'm really right on, or if I need like a, there was a point 
I think it was a year ago that I was feeling really, really, really low as a leader. Now I faked it till I thought I was making it, but there was a moment when she was like, Ilana, stand up right now, like physically stand up. Like she knew what I was going through and she was able to say, get up, like physically get up and take your power back. And like that moment that she was able to see me validate me, I mean, it's beyond important. And yeah, you're right. Like it is beyond, it's so lonely in this space. You're doing so much awesomeness and greatness, but, and there's so much reward, but it's very, very, very lonely. You know, I just put my hand in the air when you were saying that you need someone who can be direct and listeners could not see me raise my hand. And the reason I did is I'm in the same boat as you. Like I, when I have a coach, I need a coach who will be like, Dolph, you know, you faced this three times in the last year. Have you thought about what your role is in this? Because most people don't face it three times in a year. And, and that like little pop on the head is a really useful tool for me. Yep. I know because they're able to remember, right? There was a situation where I was sharing, like I had gotten this phone call from somebody who had emotionally scarred me in the past. And my kids were in the room and I saw the name on the phone and I had like a visceral response. And my kids were like, what's wrong? Like answer the phone. And I was like, I can't. And I wanted to like do a project with this person. And I told my coach the scenario and she's like, Ilana, repeat back to me what you just said to me. You had a visceral response. Your body doesn't lie to you. With, like, are you sure you want to engage that person again in like in work, in conversation? Like think about it. And like, thank you for having that memory that I just wanted to, like, I'm too busy or too distracted or whatever to, like, remember the impact they had. So they come with so much history with you and for you. Absolutely. So you also mentioned that you said, you know, and you've been through a few coaches and finding the right coach is not just difficult, but also really important. Can you talk about, like, how you went through that process and how long you gave a coach? Was it one, one conversation and you're like, no, definitely not? Or did you sometimes go four or five or six? So I, I think this is my third coach. So I've also been very lucky to put myself out there for female CEO fellowships. I think that fellowships are another great way to get professional development and to fill the loneliness gap. So if you're in a room of other 10 other CEOs within your nonprofit space, you have a cohort of people who can connect and talk to you. And I've always found that really important. So I've found my current coach through that process because they kind of like offer you different options. So I use that one, just, it just wasn't a fit. I wasn't excited to have it. You could just tell it's like dating, like mm, not for me. The second was actually a friend of mine, got her certification coach, super intuitive, intuitive and the price was right at the time. And I think I outgrew her. Like, I think that there were problems over the years that were just bigger than what she understood how to help with. And she wasn't in the nonprofit sector. So this current coach, it was really important for me, two things. She understood the nonprofit sector. She understood, maybe more than two, she understood female CEOs. And something that I always felt a little weakened was like fi my financial background. And I wanted to make sure she understood finance and she came from a finance background. So those were three things that are, were important. And then she just ended up being an amazing listener and coach, somebody to gu help guide me. That's awesome. The, yeah, I mentioned there were a few things that you had said I, wanna, I wanted to kind of go back to. And another one of them is you said the best money 
my organization is invested. And I cannot share with you how often, you know, I'll be at a conference and someone will say to me, yeah, my organization won't pay for coaching, but there's this person I'm really interested in being my coach and I think I'm just going to pay for it out of pocket. And I, and exactly, you're shaking your head no. And I do the same thing. Like I can be in person with someone and I'm shaking my head no. And I just say, no, that is a responsibility of your employer. The financial and programmatic impact of your coaching benefits them more than it benefits you in the long run. A thousand percent. And today, you mentioned I have a larger staff. I make sure that every single one of them, even if they're part-time, has a professional development line. So there's the coaching side of it for us. I want them to be able to test out a coach. Maybe they they want to continue, maybe not. I make sure that they have a mental health uh, stipend because, again, our work is really hard and personal and you're hearing really sad stories and you need to make sure to take care of yourself. And also the third piece is like, if you see a course being offered that you want to go to around something that you think you can learn from or grow, like take it. It benefits me, right? If you're excited about something, feeling like I'm like supporting you and you're going to learn something about the nonprofit sector that you don't know, do it. So that is very important for me to offer our staff. First of all, kudos to you for offering those types of things for your team members. But as we think about you leading authentically, did you have some professional experiences before you founded JFF that helped you think, okay, I want to be a different kind of leader. I want to be a leader that supports the mental health of my team and that supports the ongoing development of my team. I had a great mentor where I started my career in community organizing, always in the nonprofit space, who believed in this, believed in supporting professional development, took the time to mentor me. Like he wasn't just a boss, he was a mentor. I still call him every once in a while and he's like so proud of me today following where I've been. And I always wanna be a a supervisor and a boss like him. Um, And then I've had some people who are, you know, didn't know how to deal with like a type A person like myself who weren't really, managing me the way that was helpful for a person like me, didn't give me, didn't see me and didn't offer me what I needed. So nothing awful, but like I've seen, I've seen awesomeness and I only want to uh, make it better, you know, for, for my staff today. And that makes sense. So you were able to kind of contrast and go, okay, this was an amazing boss. This was a mediocre boss. And I want to be that amazing boss. What do I have to do to get there? And when you're when you're working directly with staff, whether it's one-on-one check-in meetings or whatever, in, in what ways do you bring yourself in an authentic way? Well, number one, it is important to set boundaries because I am open and I do want to help my staff understand I am there for them. But I've had to learn over the years, especially when you're like having you have one staff, like they're not my best friends and that's okay. Um, but I also want to make sure that they feel like they can come to me with, for like with anything. And unfortunately I had a staff, um, this week who had yet another miscarriage and I want to be able to be there for her and support her and listen to her. What broke my heart is that she said, Ilana, I feel like I'm going to be fired because I keep on having miscarriages and losses and having to take time off. And I was like, God, I can't believe that she's even entertaining that thought in her head. Like, what do I need to do better to make sure that, oh my God, that would be against everything, you know, as an infertility organization that we're saying. And also, I'm glad she can talk to me 
but I like struggle with that. So like, I want to make sure I am approachable and open, um, but I am not a therapist and I'm not their best friend. There's like this fine line. But like another thing that I did this week is I'm having somebody come back from maternity leave. And listen, right now we're an organization. I wish we could be doing more, but I'm at the point where I can pay you for eight weeks maternity leave, which was, you know, for a small scrappy nonprofit, that's a lot. It's not what I want, but it's where I'm at today. And I said, like, as you're sorting out childcare, like if I can be at all helpful, like maybe we can start three days a week or maybe, you know, whatever you need, because I trust you and I know you're in this, like, to me, it was so rewarding that I have that flexibility to make it work for them. Once they're back at work, like they are a thousand percent committed. So I want to offer that flexibility to the staff to be able to work with them where they're at. And I just have to, I have to applaud you as well. I, I hear you say, well, all we could do is eight weeks, you know, but we're a small scrappy nonprofit. There are a lot of 10, $25 million nonprofits that say to their, their employees, if you want parental leave, you can combine your PTO and your vacation and your sick leave, and that, that's what we'll give you, but otherwise it's unpaid. So, I mean, th- they're not even given four weeks. So, uh, really, I applaud you as a small organization for figuring out how to do eight. I also wanted to, us to have a little bit of a conversation about how you lead with your board. Because while, while I know, you know an executive director is not the leader of the board, they are typically leading with the board. It's not always easy, especially as a founder. And I think that that is the biggest area to navigate is this is not the Ilana show. But at the same time, the organization is connected to Ilana. So really trying to set my ego aside with also being a leader or like having enough authority to feel confident in decisions that I'm suggesting or recommending to the board. So there's a balance. It has not always been easy. Um, I think that also, you know, developing a board of like founding directors who were like me, right? Like I was the first president. I was the first board chair. And then we had a great group of founding board members who were as passionate as me about the topic, but lacked board experience. So growing that board over the past seven plus years to now a national board with individuals who are just as passionate and motivated and spending serious time as volunteers, but now bringing on experienced board members has helped me better understand how to work with boards. Because I was like figuring it out along the way. Like I wasn't a CEO before this. I didn't have the sole responsibility of working with the board or leading the board. And that's probably been my area of most growth um, (laughs) over the years. You know, what is relevant to like delegate versus bring in voices and it's a struggle. I mean, it's a constant learning lesson and constant struggle. So am I always the leader that I want to be with them? No. Like sometimes I get emotional, which is me. Sometimes I'm not always as professional as I envision or want to be. And I I have to give myself grace, but it's probably one of the hardest parts of being a CEO of my organization. I'd love to talk about some of those board transitions and your role in it. I know a lot of founding executive director have a 
difficult time having those conversations with their founding board and going, you know, you were perfect when we got started, and we need some different board members. How did you have those conversations? Thank goodness they were part of the policies that we've cre- we created early on. Uh, and I'll give a shout out to one of my past board chairs who was also a learner. Um, it was one of his first times on a board and he was a board chair. He, he grew a lot over the years, but he visited other nonprofit boards and had conversations. And one of the best things that he learned was to set term policy, term limits. And it's true, like volunteers get burnt out. It's, it's hard for them, but also you gotta have fresh ideas and fresh blood. So that was the best thing. We have a two year term limit and that allowed us and continues to allow us to get some new energy for the board. And naturally over the progression of a board, a, board, a local board to a national board, you're gonna be looking for different um, types of leaders and types of volunteers. So we've grown now to have much more an, of an emphasis on having national board experience. You have to have sat on a board. And also we've shifted from only providing like direct service as a social service organization to also being a fundraising organization. And that's a huge shift for our board members because they were not all comfortable with fundraising. And now we're helping them understand that is actually a crucial part to sitting on our board of directors. So you've mentioned two things I want us to explore. The first, and I'm going to get back to the board fundraising because I know all of our, all, all of my friends who are listening right now are like, oh, come on, Dolph, that's where you need to go. But before we get there, I want to talk about term limits. So so after instituting term limits, was there ever a time, maybe you looked at your leadership pipeline and you're like, oh, who's going to be the next president? And you thought, or a board member thought, hmm, maybe we should reconsider term limits. Well, we, we were in a situation like that um, for our last board chair because it was really important for us to Uh, modify the term limits because we wanted to make sure that the old board chair was going to be on at the same time as the new board chair so that there was an overlap. So we had to change our bylaws to say, if the board chair was rolling off the old board chair, give them a six-month extension so that they can make sure they could hold the hand of the new person just for a short time period. So like we were in a situation, because it's, it's true, like it doesn't always line up but you do have the flexibility to modify bylaws, but I would not modify the term limits um, that we've set up originally. Got it. Got it. And, and that, that that is super helpful. Thank you. Because again, I, I know a lot of organizations face that where they have term limits and then they they hit this issue and suddenly term limits are out the window. And, you know, 10 years later, they have burned out board members who've been on for 10 years and they think to themselves, ooh, we're going to have to replace almost the entire board in the next two years. So How are we going to do that? Like we do um, two-year and three-year term limits at the same time. So you're never rolling off an entire board. Like last year, we just brought on one new board member, but like different people are going to roll off at different times. So now I'm curious, how do you decide who's going to be in a two-year term and who's going to be in a three-year term? Um, With my finger, (laughs) like asking them communication. There's no like formal strategy. It's more about how committed I think they're going to be and where do I, do I see them having a potential leadership opportunity? Um, 
I wouldn't say it's arbitrary. It's thoughtful, but it's not like through a specific process. Got it. Because in my head, I was wondering like, okay, is your first term always a two-year term? And then, you know, if you've been an excellent board member, you get a three-year term. That's what I was like, ooh, how are you setting that up? Okay. That would be more strategic. Uh, right now, it's like, let me just see what, what it, am I begging them to be on the board? How do they feel? How committed? Um, but generally, pe for the most part, people have taken that second term, which I, I'll take as a good sign. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Now, you also mentioned that your board's in the process of becoming more of a fundraising board as your organization becomes more of a fundraising organization. How has that change been and what's your role been? Sure. So it, has, it is happening now. It has not been easy. I credit that to our first development director. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I was able, I got a big grant and I was able to bring in our first development director, which as many CEOs know, like, what a weight lifted off my shoulders that I'm not the only one fundraising, especially not having a board that fundraises. So she came in, uh, she's experienced and quickly understood that I needed to shift my language. I wanted to bring somebody on that could work with, not only work with me or for me, but teach me as well. Like my background, yes, I was a development director when I was in Israel, but I don't have like a Jewish Federation educated you know, I did it all naturally. Like I learned by myself. It's not like you go to school for fundraising, right? So I taught myself what I know, but I really wanted somebody to come in who was educated within a federation system, a Jewish federation system. And, and real quick, I just have to share with you, when you said it's not like you go, for, go to school in fundraising, and, and before we started recording, I mentioned my first fundraising job was at a Jewish organization. And, um, and I smiled and I thought, yes, you do. It's called federation. You either go and work a federation or you volunteer a federation, and, and then yeah. they teach you how you're going to fundraise. So she's really taught me some of the secrets. And one of the things that she came in and observed is like, you know, it is time to not only think about how we are offering services to our clients and our community, but how we have to really shift everybody's mindset. So like we have a national board, it is their duty and obligation to fundraise. And if they don't know how, we will come in and educate as we're getting to the next phase of inviting new board members who understand this. Last year was really hard. It is a challenge because it's hard for people to fundraise. So we had to go in and educate and really teach because it was kind of like a trick because our development director was new. So it was like, all of a sudden we're telling you board members, this is expected of you. We already have a nice give or get, like they, we have a minimum gift that they have to give, but we're shifting the mindset that you have to go in and start talking to your people in your community, in your networks and helping them understand it wasn't just going in and sitting down with somebody and asking for $10,000. There's a lot more to fundraising and cultivating and there's a lot more to it. So this year with a great board chair, we were able to put that on our agenda as a priority, an organizational priority to shift how our board views uh, development. That's incredible. And also now, of course, a couple of follow-up questions, because I know my friends who are listening are going to be wondering, okay, first of all, and, and so I think I can maybe answer the first one. I think you've got about nine or 10 board members. I was at your website earlier today. Yep. Um, I, roughly, what's your annual budget? So right now we're at 1.4. Okay. And what's your give get for the board? 5,000. 5, oh, wow. Okay. So you're kind of expecting the board's going to raise about 4 to 5% of the total Well, total the 5,000 really... With the exception of one or two people, they're giving a minimum of a $5,000 gift themselves. Um, so it's really coming from them. 
And like last year, we had two of our board members who were great at sitting down and soliciting, two out of the, the nine or 10. So we're really trying to take shift that two people, you know, to, to the majority of the board. And, and are those two playing a role in that shift? And if so, what? That they're sitting on the development committee. One of them, our best fundraiser was sitting on the finance committee. I get that you get numbers, but you are being like, you understand how to have these coffee, we call them coffee dates. You get it. I mean, this morning he just solicited somebody for 5,000 as well. Like he is a donor himself. He is in the community. He has his friends and he's, he's not, he gets how to ask. It is an opportunity for the, you know, for the potential donor to be a part of our community. So we need more of those. It's music to my ears that you say that. So one of the things I say again and again to organizations is your board development committee is not there to lead your organization's fundraising. They're not there to decide what the annual letter is going to look like or what color the napkins are going to be at the gala. They are there to lead your board's fundraising. I didn't know that until like three years ago, by the way. I had a development committee and I, you know, I was pretty much solo, but I under, I've only recently learned that. And that's a thousand percent true. And, and it's a game changer for your board when, you're, when your board development committee realizes, oh, we are the ones who are responsible for making sure we as a board are fundraising and making sure that we are getting what we need from the development director, the ED, so that all of our board members can fundraise. That's our job. But it's not to no. pick out the color of napkins or decide, no. decide what the annual letter is going to say. No, staff can do that. And, and I always just think that's so critical. Um, and, and, and I'll also just briefly say, uh, you know, you're not alone. I, I, I think there's a lot, like even just now, you know, as this goes out, I'd be willing to bet you, you there are people that are hearing that are like, oh, oh, I didn't fully realize that. I need to go have a conversation with my board chair. And, and let me just say, they might need to go have a conversation with their board chair and then figure out how to, how to start to make that shift. But as you said, it's not an overnight shift. Like you're t- kind of talking about that shift. You found, you know, you realized this three years ago and it's been, you know, you know, three years later is now where you all are really starting to get traction with it. Yeah, I mean, and it was hard. My board chair, who was amazing in, in a million ways, Fundraising is not her favorite thing to do, and it's very uncomfortable. So to have a current board chair who, you know, this is new to us also, a learning for us also, that we need to move into fundraising, it was not comfortable or easy. And I give her credit for really understanding and listening and partnering with the staff in understanding that this is a big shift we're going to do and we'll do it together. And we had at our very first meeting, it's February, in January, we brought in a... um, not a professional, not me or my development director. We brought in a consultant who started the training process uh, with the with the board. Yep, and that's often like such a good way to really help ma- solidify that and make it happen. Well, Alana, I hate to switch gears, but with so little time left, I've got to ask you the off the map question, and um, and this is a selfish one. Um, it has a little bit of what we're talking about today because obviously Jewish Fertility Foundation is, you know, is in part about helping families have children. And, you know, before we hit record, I'd shared with you that my husband and I are, are in the process of becoming uh, foster parents. And we're, we're not just first-time foster parents. We're also, we'll be first-time parents. And it'll probably be a teenager. And so my question for you, because I'm really curious as I think about, you know, in what ways it's, being a parent is going to change my life. What has being a parent taught you or how has it changed your life? Um, I mean, the thing that I think of all the time is we all come to the table with our own baggage, our own stuff. 
And when you're trying to love another human being, communication and listening is like the biggest thing I learn every single day because I have three boys that I worked really hard for and they're all so super different. I envisioned what I wanted them to be like and who they would be personality wise. And it's totally different than what I imagined for good and for, you know, harder. And I think the thing I learn every single day is focus on listening. What do they need? What do they need to share? Make it about them and not about you. You want to help this amazing kid, but it's not about you. It's about the kid. And um, my husband has to remind me of this every day of like, stop trying to mold them into you or like this kid doesn't want to be a public speaker. They're an introvert. Like it's all about continuously learning and listening to their needs. That is really helpful. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Alana, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and talking about authentic leadership and some other really important things as well. Thank you so much for having me. All right, friends. Uh, you know, I always want to leave you with URLs. So Alana's URL, guess what? It's the same as her organization's name, jewishfertilityfoundation.org. They also have some really dynamic social media. That's Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube. Those are longer URLs. You can get to their social media from jewishfertilityfoundation.org. We are also going to put it in our show notes at successfulnonprofits.org. And one last thing, and I don't know if we mentioned this in the conversation, but Ilana also has a podcast that you might want to check out. It is called Fruitful and Multiplying. As you can imagine, you can find this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to stream your podcast, and it will bring you all things that are the latest in fertility, fertility treatments, um, the leading doctors, attorneys, therapists, professionals, etc. So if you're interested in that topic, make sure you check out Fruitful and Multiplying. And I also want to leave you with a way to get more from this podcast. And so if this conversation about leading authentically was helpful and useful for you, I'd like for you to consider episode 187, Coaching for Nonprofit Leaders with Deb Stallings. As part of our conversation today, we had a little bit of a, a chat about coaching. And so if that piqued your interest, make sure you listen to episode 187. We also had a little bit of a side conversation around leading authentically as a woman in the nonprofit sector. And that's why you might want to listen to episode 216, Women in Nonprofits with Jess Cooper. And finally, friends, you know, I always appreciate it when you reach out and send me an email, when you write a review, or when you share this podcast with a colleague or a friend. So if you've got a few minutes today, please write a review or share this with a friend or a colleague. Or if you've got some thoughts, some maybe... Today's episode sparked a thought that you want to share with me. You can always email me at Dolph at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. That, friends, is our show for the week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And you know, this is never my favorite part of the episode, but if I don't do it, the lawyers say that we can't publish it. So I'm not a lawyer nor an accountant. And neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This podcast is for informational purposes only. 
and should not be relied on tax, legal, or accounting advice. And let me also say, since we did touch on fertility and infertility today, also don't think about this for medical advice. If you need medical advice, legal advice, tax advice, please don't seek it from me. Don't seek it from a podcast. I would not even suggest that you get it off chat GPT. I would suggest that you find a licensed, qualified professional in your area and you get the counsel you need.